Amen. All righty, good evening. Before we begin, we're going to set some ground rules for the next six weeks. All righty? We are going to cover 1,500 years in six weeks, which means that we're not even scratching the surface. We're just kind of picking up a little bit of dirt and kind of filling our fingers, and that's about all we got, right? Because we're going to cover 300 years today in about an hour and a half, all right? Okay? This week, we're doing the early church, AD 30 to AD 33 to about 300, right? So basically the ascension to 300 or just before Constantine. Next week, we're going to study Constantine and the imperial church, all right? That goes to about 600. The week after that, we're going to talk about the fall of Rome and then early medieval Christianity. We're going to kick back to about 450 and then cover to about 600, 800, 900, something like that. Then we're going to take a look at the Eastern Church, so the Orthodox Church. How many in here know anything about the Orthodox Church? I do, but I don't count, right? So we're going to look at that up until the Great Schism of 1054. Then we're going to look at the restoration of the Western Church, which is about 800 to 1200. Then we're going to look at the fall and decline of the Western Church, which is about 1,200 to the eve of the Reformation, which, is hap- which happens in 1517, okay? So that's a lot of work to do in the next six weeks, right? We're going to go through a lot of this really fast. If you have questions, comments, just raise your hand and say something, all right? Don't worry about taking it all in because we can always go back and spend more time after we finish up the book of Hebrews to study something a little further in depth, spend three or four weeks a little further in depth on something like that, okay? All right, any questions so far? Sir? Why is church important? Well, we're about to get into that, okay? <laughs> okay. I too am the master of segues. All right, all right. Church history is important because the history that you're studying tonight and for the next six weeks is your history, right? You need to know where we come from. We need to, you need to know where we've been and where we are going as a church. The great news is this. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It is his church. He works through us, right? So... We're going to study a lot of really bad things in church history. We're going to study a lot of really good things in church history. Right? Some of the bad things will make you cringe, cry, get mad, and they should. Right? Because the church has been awful to itself and awful to other people throughout its history. Right? Especially during the Protestant Reformation. Catholics did to Protestants, Protestants to Catholics, Protestants to Protestants, and Catholics to Catholics. Awful. They murdered each other by the bushels, right? But one thing you need to know is that church history does not begin with your denomination, okay? Right? Church history begins at the very beginning, right? It includes the Old Testament saints, and it includes people today in this room, okay? Church history is made by us, Okay? Every so often you run into a big name, which is great, right? But for the most part, those are few and far between, 
right? So when we discuss church history, we're not here to bash any of the other branches of Christianity, right? We're not here to tell how bad the Roman Catholics are. We're not here to tell how bad the Coptics are. We're not here to tell how bad the Eastern Orthodox Church is, okay? We're here to understand it because we will be, stu- we will be uh, spending eternity with these people, right? And they have laid a good foundation for us and we stand on their shoulders, and they have some pretty broad shoulders. Alrighty? Okay? Uh, also, we're not here to argue theology. We just don't have time for it. That's just, you're right. I mean, you can really go down rabbit trails in discussing theology. Okay? So we're here to learn about the triumphs and the failures of the church. We're here to learn the heroes and the villains of the church. We're here to learn the ups and downs of the church. That little phrase is used by Peter Lightheart, right? So, triumphs and failures, heroes and villains, ups and downs. And we're going to see a lot of that, okay? Lastly, every week, we're going to start off by saying the Nicene or the Apostles' Creed together, okay? The Apostles' Creed began in the late first century, A.D., it was finalized in its form that we're about to read in AD 150, right? But it's very early on where the church came together and said, we need a statement of faith. And this statement of faith has stayed the same from the very beginning, right? So what I'm going to say is I'm going to say, church, what do you believe? And we're going to read it together. Now there's comes in three forms, God the Father. God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So we'll read through here, slip to the next slide, and then slip to the slide after that. Okay? Any questions? Comments? Concerns? No? Okay. Church, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father, creator of heaven and earth, and believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Catholic Church. Stop right there. (laughs) Catholic. Small c. What does it mean? Universal. Universal. That's all of us. Okay? Let's read that line again. The Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. It's a pretty powerful statement. Okay? All right? You ready? Let's begin. Here we go. Right. William Shakespeare, in his play, As You Like It, started off with this line, or not started off, but he's got this great soliloquy by this guy named Jacques, and As You Like It is this comedy where this chick runs away from her overbearing father into this forest setting, and it's like this magical forest and all that, and she's trying to search for the love of her life, and runs into this guy named Jacques. And Jacques is just melancholy. He's always, like, trying to keep her grounded. Be like, keep your head out of the clouds. Keep it, 
right? Keep your feet on the ground type stuff, right? But he has a famous soliloquy in there. It starts like this. All the world's a stage. All the men and women, merely players. Okay? Right? That's us. We're just merely players in this game in some, some ways. So let's set the stage. Okay? Here we go. The facts I'm about to rattle off at you are not up there. I seem a little loud. Am I? No? We're good? Okay. Wow. So let's set the stage. History never happens in a vacuum. Right? If I study economic history, the world just doesn't stop. And we're like, okay, we're just doing economic history. If I'm studying any type of other history, like feminist history, it doesn't stop just because I'm male. Okay? History's always going along because people are always totally interacting with each other. Right? Church history is the same way. Right? We're going to start with the fall of Jerusalem and move to 300. We're just going to kind of set up the stage a little bit. But in 563 B.C., a man named Siddhartha is born. Who is Siddhartha? He becomes Buddha. All right? We're putting all this together into world history context. 551 B.C., Confucius is born in China. Okay? 470 B.C., a man named Socrates, or if you've watched that great documentary called Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventures, Socrates. Socrates is born. Okay? 427, his student Plato is born. All right? That's kind of boring. 400 B.C., the Zapotes, which are a Native American group, begin to settle in what is now northern Mexico. Right? So there's stuff going on in the North American continent. It hadn't even been discovered yet, right? or at least not by the other half of the world. Right? Okay. 221, a man by the name of Shi Wang Ti unifies China. Now we know Shi Wang Ti because he created what's called the Terracotta Army. Have you ever seen these big statues of men in Chinese uh, armor? That's Shi Wong Ti. Okay? He went nuts because he took nothing but mercury pills all his life and poisoned himself. Uh, 200 BC, the Chinese invent paper. That's kind of cool. Right? Up until then, they used uh, papyrus and they used uh, animal skins. Right? 80 BC, what is now known as Florence, Italy was founded. Florence, Italy has been around for a while. It wasn't called Florence, Italy, but it was basically the same place. Okay. 44 BC, on the Ides of March, Julius Caesar is assassinated. Right? That way we can say, a tu brute, while somebody's jabbing us with a knife or a short sword. 100 AD, or AD 100, a really neat group in the eastern uh, continent of Africa called the Aksumite began their own little empire. They actually opened the gateway between northern Africa, or what's the Roman part of northern Africa, and India. So there's a trade route. They're very important in doing that. And then in 126 AD, or AD 126, the pantheon of Rome is built. It's finished. Right? So all those types of things are going on in the time period that we are now going to study. Right? Kind of sets, sets the stage for some of that. Let's do this. Let's go. 586 BC, Jerusalem falls. The kingdom of Judah falls. To whom do they fall? To the Neo-Babylonians. 
okay, under Nebuchadnezzar II. Okay. This leads to the Babylonian exile. You can read all about it in Jeremiah and Lamentations. That's, that's what that's about. The glory of God leaves in the book of Lamentations, and Jeremiah weeps over the fact that the Shekinah glory leaves the temple. That's Solomon's temple. The temple is destroyed, right? All of its goods are carried off to Babylon, right? And the Jews are led into exile. Some of them escape to Africa. Some of them escape to what is now Turkey or Asia Minor. 539 B.C., the Medo-Persians conquer the Babylonians. This is uh, Cyrus the Great. Now, Cyrus, not being a Babylonian, uh, let me see if I, I think I have a map for that. Yep, there it is. The Median Empire, the Medo-Persians, basically what's northern-day Iraq, uh, Kazakhstan, and uh, Iran. Uh, It used to be Persia. And the Babylonians are modern-day Iraq for the most part. The uh, rest of the Levant, which goes down the east coast of the Mediterranean Sea, and Egypt. So they conquer, the Medo-Persians conquered the Babylonians, and Cyrus in 539 B.C., or actually 10 years afterwards, lets the Jews go home. He says, go home and rebuild your temple. To whom does he say that? There's a book named after him in the Bible. Nehemiah. Right? So he rebuilds the wall. He rebuilds the temple. Now he's rebuilding Solomon's temple, but at this time they then call it the second temple, and Judaism enters what we call second temple Judaism. Don't worry about that. Don't write that down. It's not important. Okay? Right? So they exist for a couple of hundred years that way. Right? And then, now here's the, the rest of the Persian Empire. Persian Empire lasts for a couple hundred years. Uh, during the Persian Empire, you run into their invasion of Greece. They're defeated by 300 Spartans and 10,000 Athenians at a place called Thermopylae. Right? Thermopylae literally means the hot gates. Thermos, hot. Uh, polis, gate in Greek. So Thermopylae. Right? They are then chewed all the way back into uh, what is now Iraq. And later on, a man by the name of Alexander the Great takes over. Right? Alexander the Great lived from 356 to... 323 B.C., right? died a young man, right? but he makes this huge conquering of, of the, basically the known world. Here's what's important with Alexander. Right? His idea wasn't just to conquer people. His idea was to spread Greek culture. Right? We call that Hellenization or Hellenism. I can spell that out for you. Oh, it's already there. Right? Hellenism. Hellenism has nothing to do with hell, right? It has everything to do with the Greek word for Greece, hellas, right? They don't have an H in Greek, so you have to kind of like say it out of the back of your throat. It's hellas, right? So Hellenism, Greek culture, okay? All right. Uh, Alexander the Great dies. He's like 32, 31, 32 when he passes away. He's either murdered or he gets some sort of infection. Nobody really knows. Right? 
His empire splits into four places, into fourths. He, uh, I keep hitting the, the home button. Here's Alexander's empire. Well, he went all the way into India, and then he got stopped because he didn't know how to fight in mountain passes. So, sucks to be him. Right? Right? He didn't last for. He got that far, moved a little bit back, and he lasted like another 18 months before he died. So, no big deal. Right? His empire split into fourths after his death. Right? Split to Ptolemy, right? to Seleucius I, Nicator. His name Nicator literally means the victor, because in Greek, Nike, N-I-K-E, is victory. That's why we wear Nike shoes. Right? That's why I have the little swoosh on. Right? So he gets what is basically uh, the, uh, the Palestinian area and part of the Mesopotamia. Right? Uh, then some guy named Adelid gets Anatolia, which is modern-day Turkey. And then uh, Antigonid gets Macedon, which is basically Greece up there. Right? Those were his four favorite generals. Ptolemy leads to the Ptolemaic pharaohs in Egypt, right? Ptolemy I being the most important one, right? But the most famous wasn't even a male. Her name was Cleopatra VII, and I can guarantee you that with all of the inbreeding, she looked nothing like Elizabeth Taylor. <laughs> okay. Right? This... Oh, is there... Yeah, there it is. There it is. Right? So the yellow part is the Seleucidans, right? Seleucius, right? Notice what part of the country that, or the part of the world that we're really important, we're really trying to focus on is what is now Judah and Pal- you know, Israel and Palestine, right? The Ptolemies are Egypt and what is part of modern-day Libya, okay? Uh, the Seleucids... The famous Seleucid out of there is Antiochus IV Epiphanes. He attempted to sacrifice a pig in the temple's altar, on the temple's altar. Guess how well that went over? Yeah, like a pregnant pole vaulter, right? (laughs) Right? Okay, right? Okay. Would you care to demonstrate? Excellent. There's the Seleucid Empire again. Right? He's got the biggest part of it. Honestly, it's not the most populated, though, because there's just a bunch of empty wilderness. So he kind of got like, like, I've got the most area, yeah. I don't have that many people. Right? The, uh, the Ptolemaic Empire has probably the greatest population of individuals at this point. Okay? Here's the important part. Okay? Spread of Hellenism. Right? What's the spread of Hellenism? Greek culture. Now, it wasn't just Greek culture was taking over. It was, let's try to blend Greek culture with the local cultures. Right? That's cool. But the most important part is this. Koine Greek becomes the language of the eastern Mediterranean basin. Okay? So everything east of Italy... The language becomes Koine Greek, right? What is your New Testament written in? 
Koine Greek. Now the irony, here's my Nestle Allen 27 Greek New Testament. Right? The irony is it says Novum Testament Greke. That's not Greek, that's Latin. <laughs> right? Right? But there it is in Greek. And yes, it is all Greek to you. Right? Okay? It's all Greek to me too. Right? Okay. Now, the Jews did not want to be mixed in with Hellenism. Right? Because not only did you have the mixture of the culture, but Hellenism really said, hey, let's take all of the gods out of these regions and make them our own. Make them, you know, really give them some local flair. Right? Are the Jews polytheistic or monotheistic? Very much monotheistic. There's one God. You shall worship the Lord your God. Right? The Lord is one. Right? Once again, that didn't go really well with, with the Jews because they're like, you can't just come in and, and absorb Yahweh as your own God. Number one, we don't have statues to him, and you're here putting, wanting to put statues of all sorts of local gods and goddesses throughout the nation. Right? Some Jews were like, well, I can dig this Hellenism stuff. Right? I'm kind of in power anyway, so let's, let's really suck up to the Seleucidans. And they did. Right? And they became very powerful. But for the most part, there was push against. That is the history of Israel in a nutshell, is resistance against anything, right? especially Yahweh. Right? They weren't exactly the most... obedient people. That's why they ended up in Babylon in 586 B.C. Right? Okay? But they push against them. And we're going to run into more of that pushing against here when they get to the Roman Empire. Right? So, Rome conquers then in 63 B.C. Rome is an interesting history to study. Because they like to do what the Greeks do, and they absorb everything. Right? The Greeks didn't, weren't conquered by the Romans. Rome marched into Athens, and the Greeks were like, here you go. They just said, it's all yours. Because we want to be Greeks, and we want to sit in our ivory towers, and we want to do nothing but think good thoughts and study philosophy. You, on the other hand, Rome, like power and glory, so have at the Mediterranean all you want. That's, uh, so in 63 BC, after some uprising in the Palestinian area, they walk in and say, enough is enough to the Jews. You're under Rome's law now. We're not, going, we're not doing this anymore. By the way, when I say Palestine or Palestinian area, I'm not talking today's uh, nation or pseudo-nation or however you want to look at your own political theory. Personally, don't care what it is. I'm just telling you that that's what the name of that area is, right? So Palestine is a geographical location at this time. It goes from Judah to Judea to Palestine. That's just the progression of the name. So I'm going to use the word Palestine a lot. It has nothing to do with Yasser Arafat or any of those other guys, okay? Righty? So there's that, okay? Now, the Jews that saw Hellenism 
as bad, as a curse, right? mainly because it was a threat to their faith. Monotheism versus polytheism. Okay? This led, after about 150 years, to a rebellion called the Maccabean Rebellion. Raise your hand if you've heard about the Maccabean Rebellion. Right? Okay. Have you all seen a, a menorah? Yeah. Yeah. The lighting of the menorah comes from the Maccabean Revolt. Okay. So in about uh, BC or 173 BC, uh, Judas Maccabeus uh, leads a revolt against the, uh, actually against the Seleucidans. I kind of backed up a little bit. And I forgot to tell you that. They back. Uh, they uh, they they revolt against the Mac uh, against the the Seleucidans, and they take over. They win. Okay. The Maccabees then become the leaders for the next 120 years. Okay. Rome comes in, takes over in 63 B.C., gets rid of the Maccabees, cleans everything out and then brings the Maccabees back. Because they're like, okay, you've done well. Nobody revolted too much under your rule, except for they're the last, which is why we came in. Let's bring you back in. They named the Maccabees high priests and something called an ethnarch. The Maccabees were not of the line of Aaron. What problems does anybody see with that being named high priest? They don't have any authority. Who gave the house of Aaron the authority to be priests? Yahweh did. Right? They are also named something called an ethnarch, and we're going to run into that word again here in a second when we look at Herod. Okay? Ethnarch literally means the ruler of the people. It comes from the, the word ethnos, which is people or tribe in Greek. Right? So, here's another question for you. Do you think the Maccabees are of the house and line of David? No. Nope. So somebody else comes in and puts them on the throne of Judah. Right? People accept it, though. Do you know why? Because Rome said, if, if you follow this, we're not, we're not going to mess up anything. We're not going to mess with your, your monotheism. We won't put any pressure on you other than the fact that you have to pay taxes. And the people went with it. All right? Okay? After that, right, a man by the name of Herod the Great comes to power in 80, or excuse me, in 40 B.C. We've all heard of Herod the Great. Yeah. Read Matthew and Luke when he's there. Okay. Herod the Great comes to the throne. He's not even Jewish. Okay. He comes from this little area down here. 
You all see the Sinai Peninsula? Okay. Just north of that is a group of people. They're called the Eadumas or the Ediums. They are descendants of Esau. They're not even descendants of Isaac. Now, Herod marries into the Maccabean family. That's how he becomes king. Right? Rome names him Ethnarch also. Right? So now that we've set up Israel, they are ruled, A, by a foreign power, to be honest. That's Rome. And sitting on their throne is a man who comes from the line of Esau. That's bad news. Right? Theologically, that's horrible news. Right? But we're not getting into theology. Okay? Right? Herod, trying to get the will of the people on his side, rebuilds the temple. And he makes it a massive one. They call it Herod's Temple. It was still under construction during Jesus' day. It was still under construction when it was destroyed in AD 70. It was massive. It was, I mean, take Solomon's, Solomon's temple was glorious in the fact that it was smaller and compact and God's glory left, lived there. Herod's temple was for the glory of Herod. Okay? Right? But that all sets up the time for Jesus. Right? We're not going to go through the Gospels because we can all read those. Okay? But that's what happens. Jesus is then crucified, right? Raises, rises from the dead, and ascends. And that's where we begin. Okay? Any questions so far? That is, we just went through 586 years of history in 30 minutes. That's a lot. Questions? Zach? Sure, I, I, I had to like not include that because we could have gone forever on just the introduction tonight. So, zealots are, are actually seen throughout all of Israel's history. But the zealots that we talk about, like when we talk about Simon the Zealot or uh, uh, Judas the Zealot, because there's Judas Iscariot and then Judas the Zealot, who's also one of the twelve. The zealots are a hyper-Israel, hyper-Davidic kingdom, kick Rome out, kick anybody out, actually, that's not Jewish, and let's set up the earthly kingdom as it was under David. They are trying to bring back a Davidic kingdom. It is a, it's a messianic or a pre-messianic movement in that it's trying to get Israel back to where they think she should be pre-Babylon. Actually, all the way back to David and then Solomon. So the zealots love to walk around with their swords and their daggers. They had an, an entire setup of, of assassins within them who would go around and assassinate at first the Seleucidans, the Seleucid Empire, anybody associated with the Seleucid Empire. Uh, they would uh, they would murder Roman soldiers. They just come up behind them and 
right up you know, in the back of the neck or slit the throat or up underneath the rib cage with their knives. Right? So they weren't, they were wanting to bring in God's kingdom, but they were wanting it to do it their way. Okay? So when Jesus says, I'm going to, the kingdom of God is near, right? A dynamic version of that could be the kingdom of God is in your face because literally the kingdom of God was in your face when Jesus was physically speaking to you. Okay? Right? So when Jesus, who is this Messiah, comes in and he's like, I'm going to restore the kingdom, somebody like Judas the Zealot said, yes, let's do this. I'm all for it. I've got 17 knives. They're all hidden on me. I am packing heat, Jesus. Let's go. Right? So that would be, right? I purposely didn't talk about the Pharisees and Sadducees because we could go forever on those too. <clears throat> Pharisees and Sadducees are something that come out of Babylonian exile. Right? They, they're all moved over to Babylon. Right? Jews continue to practice Judaism. Right? They begin to break into different schools of thought. The Pharisees are actually a little bit more liberal than their... Uh, the, yeah, the Pharisees are a little bit more liberal than their Sadducee partners. Right? Everybody goes, well, Sadducees are sad because they didn't believe in the resurrection. Ha, 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 ha. Right? That's true, they didn't. All right? But they were very conservative in the rest of their, in the rest of their theology. Right? To a Sadducee, if you were going to discuss the Ten Commandments, you don't start with, okay, here's the first word in the Ten Commandments. Now let's flesh out what that means and have a whole bunch of other laws to go with it just to explain this one word. Right? The Sadducees would say, it says, you shall have no other gods before me. Okay. We can take that one sentence and just go for it. You bet. Yes, sir. Right? The Pharisees would want to sit and contemplate their belly buttons on stuff like that, and they still do today within uh, Judaism. Right? You, can, you can go into schools in uh, Jerusalem, and they will literally sit at tables like this, and you'll have two opposing arguments, and they will sit and argue with each other for hours on end. Right? It's a lot like going to seminary where you're trying to eat lunch, and somebody wants to argue something they just learned in class 20 minutes beforehand which somehow makes them an expert, okay? But it's the same thing. So the Pharisees are actually a little bit more liberal, right? They, they want to discuss it. They want to flesh it out. Uh, they believe heavily in angels, and they believe heavily in, in resurrection. They believe that the Messiah is going to come, and it's going to change everything. The Sadducees would say the Messiah is going to come, and he's going to restore Israel, and Israel alone, right? Which is why, which is why in the New Testament, when Jesus is arguing with the leaders, who is he arguing with? He argues 99% of the time with the scribes and the Pharisees. Do you know why? Because they were so much alike. Right? You don't argue with somebody that you're not really like, right? I'm a, incredibly a lot like my mother. And if she were alive today, when we argue, boom, head to head, right? Paul comes out of the Pharisaical line. He is a Pharisee. He is a, 
Hebrew of Hebrews, born of the tribe of Benjamin, who gives his entire biography and goes, but it's all nothing without Jesus, right? Okay, so there we are. Jesus crucified, raised from the dead, rises from the dead, ascends into heaven where he sits at God's right hand. Now what? Okay, here we go. Any, any other questions? Any other comments? Okay. The early church. Oh, here's a, here's a, a better picture of, of Palestine at the time. So here's Judea. Herod comes from this area right down here. Right? So he comes from from the line of Esau, right? Okay. More maps. I didn't realize that we put a lot of maps in there, and now I'm not using them. Sorry. So, okay. Here's the Greco-Roman world. This is what it looks like by 8127. All right. What's that? Furthest extent, yep. Okay, it means east, west, north, south. That's as big as the Roman Empire was. The early church had an advantage that they didn't have later on, and that's something called the Pax Romana. The Pax Romana literally means the Roman peace. It allowed you to travel north, south, east, west throughout the empire without being harassed. Right? Rome had great highway systems right? because they needed some, something to march their legions on. Guess who built the highways? The legions. Right? They were a construction team and a fighting team all rolled up to one. They were like the Seabees if you were in the Navy. Right? They built runways and airplanes would land on them and they do all sorts of crazy things. Right? So here it is. Right? From Augustus to Marcus Aurelius. The same Marcus Aurelius in Gladiator. You're welcome. Okay? <laughs> Tie that back into modern culture. There you go. Okay? Right? But Paul gets to go where he goes. Missionaries get to go where they go because of this. Because of the Pax Romana and their highway system. All right, here we go. The early church. The early church is marked by persecution and growth. That's the theme. If you don't remember anything else tonight, I say as I ramble on about nothing, just know that the early church is marked by persecution and growth. Right? No growth without persecution. Okay? We're going to learn a lot about the persecution here in a bit. The church begins in Jerusalem. You can read that in Acts 1 and 2, right, and 3. Jesus said, go to Jerusalem and wait till Holy Spirit comes around you or comes upon you. Right? They go up to the mountain of the Ascension, and they all stand around going, where did he go? Right? Angels, two men in white, as Luke writes in Acts, stands around and goes, why are you guys all standing around? What did he literally just tell you? Go back to Jerusalem and wait until the Holy Spirit comes on you. And they're like, oh, yeah, he did say that, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, I remember that, right? It begins in Jerusalem, right? From the very beginning, there are conflicts. But they're not conflicts between Jews and Gentiles. They are conflicts between Jews and Jews, right? Remember we just talked about Hellenism? How some people were like, yay, Hellenism. And others were like, boo, right? 
guess what's coming up, right? Conflict between Hellenized Jews and what we call old school Hebrew, right? Or, or I call old school Hebrew, not we, but I kind of want to say that now in a, in a paper, but like old school Hebrews, right? Hellenists, Hellenized Jews, Hebrews, Orthodox Jews. So when we read in Acts that there's tension between the Hellenized and the brothers, right? The Orthodox Jews are trying to kick out the Hellenized Jews and say, oh, well, you're, you accept some of this Greek culture. You're not really, you're not really Yahweh's people. So off you go. Oh, communal meals? Nope, this is just for us. So the 12 appoint, yes, ma'am? They like to study uh, philosophy. Most of them spoke Greek really well as opposed to just fairly well. Uh, they dressed in Greek clothing. Uh, they ate uh, as best as they could while still remaining kosher. They ate Greek-style foods. Uh, basically, they just weren't hanging out at the temple 24-7. Right? To be a good Orthodox Jew, you needed to be at the temple all the time. And they weren't. That's a good question. So, so there's that. Okay, Hebrews persecuted the Hellenized Jews. Apostles step in. They appoint seven table servers. Those are the first deacons. And if you read in the book of Acts, they all have Greek names. One of them is Stephen. Right? Okay, Stephanos in the Greek. Right? What was the religious life of the early church like? Well, they didn't consider themselves a new religion. That's interesting, right? What do they consider themselves? Well, they consider themselves true Jews, right? Like the Messianic age is coming, so here we go. He's come in Jesus. Let us, there, let us therefore go and worship in the temple, and let's tell the rest of our Jewish brothers and sisters that the Messiah has come. They didn't reject Judaism. Their faith was the conviction that the Messianic age had come in the person of Jesus Christ. Right? And they were right. right. They kept the Sabbath, worshipped at the temple. They fasted two days a week in accordance with Judaism. Now, Judaism usually fasted on Tuesday, Thursday. Christians which they're not called Christians at this point yet, they're followers of the way, fasted on Wednesday, Friday. Especially Friday because of the idea of crucifixion being on Friday. Right? We can argue Monday was really the first day of the week or Sunday was really the first day of the week, but in the ancient Near East, Monday was really the first day of the week. So we can talk about the actual date of the crucifixion at some other time. Okay? Wednesday, because it wasn't Tuesday or Thursday. Just to be different, okay? The authority of the believers was vested in the 12 apostles. Now remember, Judas Iscariot hangs himself, so that's down to 11, right? So they, 
cast lots and Matthias wins. Right? He becomes the 12th. And then James, the brother of Jesus, was also a man of authority in the early church. So there's 12 plus 1, 13. James, the brother of Jesus, who was actually Jesus' half-brother, was not a disciple. He's one of the ones in Mark that was like, Mom, Jesus is being weird again. He's claiming he's healing people, right? Let's go get him. People are like, hey, your mom and your brothers are outside. And Jesus goes, who are my mother and my brothers? Those who do, my, do the will of the Father are my mother and my brothers. James was one of the ones that was like, oh, we've got to go get him again. Jeez. Okay? All right? Other practices. Not only did they meet in the temple and worship on the Sabbath and keep the Sabbath holy, but they also met in local houses, so they had house churches. Okay? At the beginning of, the, of every week, they got together for a common meal. You read about that in the book of Acts also. Right? Uh, the common meal was literally just, well, we're Baptists, so it would be like a potluck. Paul describes some of the practices in 1 Corinthians about how people would show up to these common meals and just get fat and wasted, right? And he's like, look, you can, you can get fat at home and you don't have to get drunk every time you're at these things, right? So uh, some of those practices the Corinthians were doing, not so nice, right? But it was also during the common meal, the communal meal, that they would then celebrate communion, together with the breaking of the bread, a prayer, the drinking of the wine, and yes, it was actual alcoholic wine, right, for the blood and the body, of, uh, the, the body and the blood of Christ, right? So they wrapped all that up and together into one. So Monday was basically like another worship service. It was also a time of fellowship, okay? Right? They would get to, they'd come together and they would pray. Uh, socioeconomically, they were mainly poor, right, and slaves, Later on, we'll see how God does amazing things in the Gentiles with Cornelius, right? He's the first Gentile convert, he and his people, right? He was a centurion in the Roman army, right? That's way up there. You're ahead of 100 men, right? That's where we get the word century from, centurus, for 100, all right? So he's kind of like a captain, I guess nowadays is what we call him, but... Uh, so we begin to see some climb in social status among Christians, but for the most part, poor or slaves. Why do you think that is? There's a freedom in Christ. Who has the most to gain? If I'm a wealthy Roman or a wealthy Jew... You lose everything. Why? Because Jesus calls you to die to yourself, right? Give up everything, right? I mean, the rich young ruler proved that, right? Jesus, Master, I keep everything. I keep all of the laws. Man, you sure do. I'm really proud of you. Now go and sell everything that you have and come and follow me. And what happens to the rich young ruler? The Bible says he goes away sad. 
also those that are persecuted come from lower classes. And that's, that's throughout all of history. The upper classes persecute the lower classes. It's just the way it works. I'm not defending it. I'm just telling you that's, what it, that's how it goes. Right? Okay? Uh, so from there, it spreads from neighbor to neighbor, from kitchen slave to kitchen slave, from house slave to house slave, from, uh, I don't know, small-time shopkeeper to small-time shopkeeper. Right? Not a whole lot going up in the upper echelons of society at this point. Okay? When the empire finally acknowledges Christianity with Constantine, everybody flocks to the church because then it becomes popular. Not because they need Jesus, but because it becomes popular. So then you get a whole lot of upper echelons flocking to the church because if it's good enough for the emperor, it's good enough for me. Crazy, huh? Yeah, okay. Questions so far? Comments? Snide remarks? Okay. All right. Let's look at earliest persecution. Persecution from the very beginning, we said, was Hellenistic Jews persecuted by the Orthodox Hebrews. Okay. Uh, you can see this in, in, in the book of Acts. Peter and John are Orthodox Hebrews, right? They are caught by the Sanhedrin, who is run by, which is run by Orthodox Hebrews. And what happens to them? Well, they get flogged and said, don't, don't preach in Jesus' name ever again. Stephen is not. He's a Hellenized Jew. What happens to Stephen? He's murdered. He's martyred, right? He stands up and says, everything that the Orthodox Jews know to be true, he lays down this amazing history. He starts with Abraham and goes all the way to Jesus. And you go, preach it, brother. It is fantastic. And he really just pours salt into that wound. Right? What do they do? Man, they rip their clothes. They get mad because, number one, they know it's true. Right? They rip their clothes. They get mad. They drag Stephen out into the street, and they stone him. And they lay their cloaks at the feet of whom? Saul of Tarsus. All right? Now, you're asking, how did Jews get in Saul, uh, up into Tarsus? I'm glad you asked. Tarsus is now in modern-day Turkey. All right? Anytime there was persecution of the Jews, they fled. Like I said, they fled down to Egypt in Alexandria. Alexandria at the time is much larger than Rome. It is the place to be if you want to go to college. It's better than Athens. Right? They have all sorts of universities. They have all sorts, or what would become universities. They have all sorts of philosophical schools. They have the famous Library of Alexandria, which happened to be one of the ancient wonders of the seven wonders of the ancient world, along with their lighthouse. Okay. When Jesus, baby Jesus, and Joseph and Mary flee to Egypt, five bucks says they went to Alexandria. Now, the scripture doesn't tell us where they went. They said they went to Egypt. Five bucks says they went to Alexandria because they have a huge Jewish population. Of the, hundred, of the one million people that are in Alexandria at this time, 10% of them are Jews. That's 100,000 people. That's a lot. Right? So you've got this huge population of Jews. Right? Safety. 
And Jesus is called that one. Matthew says, I called my son out of Egypt. All right? When that term is first used, he's talking about the actual nation of Israel. All right? Back in the prophets. Then when Jesus is called out, Jesus is then named the new Israel or the perfection of Israel. I have called my son out of Egypt. All right? The same thing with Tarsus. Tarsus is a small village. It's a small city. It's not as big as Alexandria. It's not as big as Athens. Not as big as Rome. But they fled. They fled north and south, east, west, all over the place. They even fled to Italy, right? which is why there was a huge Jewish population in Italy when Claudius kicked them out in AD 54. Right? The persecution led to fleeing. God used that persecution to then have little outposts, right, where once Jesus rose from the dead and believers were persecuted, they can then run to those outposts. Right? Why is church history important, you ask, Jamie? Because God is the one who's in charge of it, not just church history, right? He's the one that allowed Alexander to take over the Mediterranean world. He's the one that allowed the Hellenization of the culture and the, the combination or the, the, uh, the use of Koine Greek as the language. He's the one that allowed the Romans to take over and build massive highway systems. Why? What's he setting up? Not just Jesus, but the spread of his gospel. That's why this history is important. Right, I'm about to get emotional. <clears throat> right? Because God was in control, he said, you know what? This is a horrible situation. I'm sorry you disobeyed, Jews. But let me tell you, your Messiah is coming. I am coming. Yahweh, Yeshua, Yahweh saves, or Yahweh is my salvation. He's on his way, and he's coming. And I'm going to set this up, and it's going to change the world. And it has. Right? Okay? That's why history is important. That's why every time there's a persecution, there's a dispersion or a diaspora of believers, right? Because he's setting up the next step. He's going to set up the next step. He's going to set the next step. It's like stepping in a giant puddle. You step in that puddle, what happens? All those other little puddles go, right? Okay? So, Stephen's persecuted. It begins the persecution of the Hellenistic Jews. They flee out of Jerusalem, Okay? The Orthodox Jews are allowed to stay. That's weird. Why is that? Well, because they're not Hellenistic Jews. That's literally, it's, it's very racist, to be honest. Okay. So, they leave. Okay. Any questions so far? Comments? Hellenistic Jewish believers. Jewish Christians. They're allowed to. Yep. They're allowed to stay. They're allowed to stay because they're Orthodox Jews. Because Peter and John are flogged as opposed to stoned like Stephen is. Right. Okay. Yes. No, I can't do anything briefly. <laughs> 
the word, like just the etymology of the word Jew? Oh, okay. That's a, that's a Babylonian exile. The word Jew, J-E-W, comes from the word Judah. So, and Judea. Right, so Judah is one of the 12 uh, tribes, right? Okay. The word Jew is literally a Gentile word for Judah. So the, the Jews call themselves Hebrews or Israelites, meaning of the sons of Israel. The Gentiles use the word Jew. Right? It just kind of stuck with us because 99% of us in this room are of Gentile descent. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's literally just a which, which country or which ethnicity is, being, is using the word to describe that, that region that we call Israel. Yeah, right. So like, like, the, like the German word for Jew is Judah, right? It's literally Judah. Does that make sense? Okay. All right. So we're still under persecution. All right. The next person in line for the throne of Judah is Herod Agrippa. He's Herod the Great's great-grandson. Herod the Great, as, despite what his name said, wasn't all that great, right, except he built a really huge temple. Herod Agrippa was a jerk, to put it nicely. I can't say the word that I want to say because they're our brothers and sisters in Christ present. <laughs> and a child. <laughs> so, right, he's a great-grandson of, of Herod the Great. Herod Agrippa orders the death of James, the brother of John. Right, remember we have James, the brother of Jesus. James, the brother of John. James and John, the sons of thunder. Right, this is one of the inner three. Peter, James, and John. James is executed, and people go, yeah, right? The Orthodox Jews around, or the Orthodox Hebrews in Jerusalem are like, hey, we kind of like that. Do that again, right? They celebrated it, okay? So he goes, okay, now let's order the death of Peter, and he gets the Sanhedrin in on it, and the high priest to order it. Peter escapes, okay? So he's gone. He's done, right? Now, in AD 62, James, the brother of Jesus, is executed. Okay? This time, just by sole order of the high priest. They, uh, they stone him to death. They're not allowed to crucify him because that's a Roman way to do it. So they stone him. Now, Orthodox Hebrews are persecuting Orthodox Hebrews. Does that make sense? Okay, ready? After Stephen's martyrdom, all of the Hellenistic believers, all the Hellenistic Jewish believers, leave. They, fl they flee up to Damascus. They flee down to Egypt. They flee across the empire. Right? They flee to Antioch. So now you just have the, the Orthodox Hebrew believers in Jerusalem. Herod 
Herod Agrippa then starts ordering the deaths of Hebrew Orthodox believers. So now everybody's getting persecuted. This is the first time where actual outside influence other than Hebrews, so now the Gentiles are ordering the deaths of Christians. Okay? All right. So here's what happens. The Hebrew Jews, Hebrew Jewish Christians, leave Jerusalem. They go out east. Right? They go across the Jordan River, and they set up their own little communion, community. They're led by a guy named Simeon. Simeon is later executed by the Romans. He's crucified, because that's the way the Romans did everything. Right? He's crucified. Right? And the Hebrew Jewish Christians become isolated. That's weird. Right? They're just out there on their own. Because we're about to see that there's a whole other chapter opening up in the West. Right? We're going to look at what's going on in the rest of the Roman Empire at this point when it comes to Christianity. But the Hebrew Jewish Christians, those Orthodox Hebrews, they leave, go out west, or excuse me, go out east, across the Jordan River to a place called Pella, P-E-L-L-A, and they set up their own little place. Right? Christianity there dies because there's no interaction with anybody. They also developed some really strange theology. Uh, by AD 135, what we would consider orthodox Christianity, non-heretical Christianity, is absent from among orthodox Jewish believers. They believe Mary is part of the Trinity at that point. Mary, the mother of Jesus. So later Christian writers just say, oh, this weird heretical group out across the Jordan River, we don't talk about them. Okay? So they're, they're heretical. That's what happens to the Jerusalem church. Or the beginnings of it, I should say. It comes back. Kind of weird, huh? Questions? Comments? No? Let's keep going. Now we get into the fun part. I promise you. Okay? Okay, so, spread of Christianity, once again, what causes the spread of Christianity? Persecution. Okay, persecution, and then we get growth. Okay. Now we get to the first Gentile converts. Cornelius, the first one, right? He's the same dude that Peter was like, oh, no, he's a Gentile lord. And what does God do? Puts down the the big old sheet with all the animals in it and says, take up and eat. Don't call unclean what I've already called clean. Guess what? He's not talking about animals in that little vision. He's talking about Gentiles. Right? They're made in my image just like you are, Peter. And you're quick to draw your sword, so go ahead and take, take and kill and eat. Well, I can't do that. Right? Uh, Dorcas is the second Gentile conversion. She's a rich uh, merchant up in uh, Turkey. Okay? That's kind of cool. 
So you get a Roman centurion as the first Gentile believer. And the second one is this rich woman. That's awesome, you know, because that means that it's for everybody, not just 12 fishermen, right? God's amazing the way he does this, the way he spreads it, because then Dorcas is able to then fund some of Paul's later missionary journeys, okay? All right, so first Gentile converts, and you also have to talk about the Ethiopian eunuch, Right. Philip gets a hold of the Ethiopian eunuch because he's written, reading out of Isaiah. And he's like, I don't understand any of this. And Philip goes, I do. Let's do this. So he does it. Where's Ethiopia? Five bucks says it's still in Africa today. Okay? What has God just done? What has God just done in these, in these three Gentile conversions? He's opened up three continents, Asia, Africa, and Turkey is in Asia Minor. That's still part of Europe. Boom. That's amazing stuff, right? Okay. Right. The Gentile converts totally surprise the Orthodox Church, the Orthodox Jewish Hebrew believers, okay? Because they're like, oh my gosh. And in Acts, they're like, even the Holy Spirit can be on the Gentiles? And God's like, yes, we already talked about this in the book of Joel. Were you not paying attention to what I was telling you? <laughs> right? Okay? I mean, it's like, wow. Right? Then there's this event in Antioch. Antioch, all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit just enmassed, I mean, just pours down on Antioch. And they're about to become this hotbed of missionary journeys. They're going to send everybody, left, right, up north, down, south, whatever, all over the place. Right? Antioch is also the first place where Christians are called Christians. Right? Do you know where the word Christian comes from? It's from the Latin word Christianus, and it literally means little Christs. Why? Because people acted like Jesus amazing, right? Jesus changed their life. The Holy Spirit changed their life so much that it literally changed their name. That's awesome. Literally changed their name. It literally changed the way we address a whole group of people. It doesn't mean it matter if they're male, female, Ethiopian, from modern-day Turkey, it doesn't matter if they're from Mexico. It doesn't matter if they're from the United States. It changed the way you address them because their character is formed into the likeness of Christ. They're from all over the place. And so, yeah. how do you define them? You can't call them this, you can't call them that, you have to define them as little Christ. So they act like Christ, mm -hmm. and they're from every And they're from, they're literally, literally from every corner of the empire. Yeah. yeah. You just took my point away from me. No, <laughs> That's all right. 
I like the fact that you said that, right? 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 That's right. Barnabas is sent by the 12th up to investigate. The same Barnabas, that's Paul and Barnabas. Right? And he goes, awesome stuff's happened here. However, we don't know what to do with them because, like Kyle just pointed out, they're from literally all over the place and we don't have any rules to set for them because we're all Orthodox Jews and we're trying to adhere to the kosher laws and the ceremonial purity laws and we can't do that with Gentiles and Jews that are mixing together, so what do we do? So they have the first council, the church, first church council, is the council of Jerusalem where literally the 12 sit around and go, okay, we'll give them two rules. Abstain from blood when you're eating anything and avoid sexual immorality. And that was it. That was the Council of Jerusalem. And Antioch was like, we can do that. We got gotcha. you. Right? Let's move forward. Okay? And Antioch was like, great. Okay? Then also with the spread of Christianity, you have Paul's missions. Right? How many missions did he have? Four. That's right. We're not, I'm not going to break down his missions because, once again, you can read them in the book of Acts. There's a slide on there. Got it. Is that part of it? No. There it is. Okay? Four of them. Boom. He's all over the place. Okay? He's not the first to go beyond Judea, let's be honest, with persecution the Hellenized Jewish believers. They went all over the place. Paul... This just happened to be the first big name to go. Okay? Right? Because he is the apostle to who? Gentiles. What makes him have that authority? What happened to Paul? Saul. He saw Jesus face to face where? On the road to Damascus. What was he doing on the road to Damascus? Where was he going? He was going to go up to Damascus and Antioch and persecute Believers, right? Until Jesus got a hold of him and goes, Paul, why you kick against the goads? Right? Okay. Paul is this hyper-educated Jew. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. You had to be married to be a member of the Sanhedrin. So most people think that Paul's wife had passed away at this point. Or after he became a Christian, he left, she left him. Which is why Paul's like, I'm not married. Okay? So... That's always an interesting point of contention among scholars. Was Paul married or not? Well, he was a member of the Sanhedrin and he had to be. There was no rules. Rules were not allowed to be changed. Even Paul was, Paul was brilliant. He made Einstein look like an idiot. That's how brilliant he really was. All right? And Einstein came up with some really crazy theories. Right? He was a brilliant physicist. But Paul's brain operated on a level that I wish mine did. Super hyper-educated, super hyper-brilliant. And God said, you know what, I'm going to use that for my glory. He's like, and in the meantime, I'm going to make you seem like a babbling idiot to everybody around you. Right? Because the cross is foolishness right? to Gentiles. It's a stumbling block to the Jews, and a crucified God is absolutely ridiculous to Gentiles. Go have fun. Here you go. Okay, so he goes on four of them, right? Uh, he ends up in Jerusalem, uh, excuse me, ends up in Rome, right, just because he's, he's arrested in Jerusalem, and he says, I appeal to Caesar, 
Now, once you say, I appeal to Caesar, you have a, as a Roman citizen, you have a legal right to talk or argue your points in front of Caesar personally. Right? By saying, I appeal to Caesar, guess whose household the Holy Spirit just opened up? Caesar's. Right? So you get some converts in Caesar's households, household as well. Okay? Right? Any questions so far? No. Okay. Facts and legends about the apostles. Right? We're just going to do a couple of them, take, take a couple questions, and then keep moving. Okay? Uh, history doesn't really tell us much about the 12. Scripture doesn't tell us much about the 12 either. Guess what? We don't need to know. Is it important? No. It really isn't. Okay? What happened to them afterwards? Not important in God's, t- in, in God's story. Just saying, I'm just going to keep preaching Christ over and over and over again. What happens to them happens to them. Right? That's the way it works. Okay? Uh, Peter soft suffers martyrdom under Nero, right? Somehow he ends up in Rome. He's crucified upside down. There he is. Right? Okay? That's fun. Okay? Nero reigned from 8054 to 61 or something like that. We'll get to Nero here in a bit. Okay? Paul, too, suffered martyrdom under Nero. He's executed like a good Roman, and he has his head chopped off. Now, there are some who say that Paul made all the way to Spain and preached the gospel in Spain and then on his way back was in Jerusalem. That's where he got arrested and then he appealed to Rome. Right? Whether he did or not is a question that we can ask him one of these days. Right? There's no historical evidence that he did and that's okay. Right? Doesn't matter because eventually the gospel did get to Spain. Okay? Uh, James, the brother of John, we've already said, was executed under Herod Agrippa, right? James, the brother of James, he was executed by stoning, or James, the brother of Jesus, excuse me, executed by stoning, James, the brother of James, James, the brother of Jesus, executed by stoning, but there's a legend that has it he was boiled alive in a vat of oil. That's always fun, right? Um, uh, that's... Eusebius of Caesarea in his ecclesiastical histories. They just kind of make it seem like he's suffered worse than he did. Right? There's a lot of <clears throat> the historiography of ancient writings is always a little suspect because there's always a reason why they are writing. It's usually to fulfill a monetary agreement or to make the person to whom they are writing seem great. Like Josephus. Uh, wrote his history of the Jews, but it's for a Roman audience. So he talks bad about everybody that makes the Romans look fantastic. Eusebius of Caesarea is writing his histories in the 8300s, right at the time that Constantine is coming to power, and so he makes Constantine look great and everybody else look stupid. So there's always a little bit of a, who's your backer, who's lining your pockets? You don't want, yeah, yeah, because if you write bad about it, they'll, they'll get rid of you. They have their ways. They'll boil you in oil. Okay. Okay. Uh, there's, also an, there's also a legend that James, or John the brother, James the brother of Jesus, uh, let's see, I said stone and boiling oil. Okay, great. Now John the brother of James. 
right? Too many Jameses, too many Johns, right? John, the brother of James, is also accused, or legend has it, that he's also boiled in oil. It's also legend that he was placed in this sarcophagus-looking box, then covered in oil, and then rotisseried alive. That's fun, okay? And then there's also the legend that he died in Ephesus in 8100. Okay? So, for our importance, guess what? He's dead, right? It's the year 2019, and if you were born in the year 8030 and you're still alive today, way to go. Right? Okay. Thomas, the doubter. Thomas, the doubter, they said he started the church in India. That's it. And then he died in India. He was martyred in India. Right? Whether that's true or not, we don't know. Right? There are no graves marking most of these men's burial spots, and there was nobody to actually write down or follow them and write them down and say, yep, here it is. Boom, boom, boom. Okay? All right? Santiago, Spain, claims that James, the brother of Jesus, started the church in Spain. So there's either Paul started it or James, the brother of Jesus, started the church in Spain. Santiago literally means St. James in Spanish. That's the name, Santiago. So... If you're going to name yourself Santiago as a city, guess who you're going to say started your city? James. That way you can get, and we'll talk about medieval Christianity later, but it's basically to get a seat of power and have a cathedral built. That way the bishop comes and visits you, and you're a big seat of power in, in that region. That's, that's why Santiago Spain says that. It's not because James was actually there, it's just because they wanted to look nice in everybody else's eyes. Okay? Right? Questions? Let's get to Rome. Okay? Roman persecution arose because of conflicts with the empire. Rome is all about Rome. They don't really care what you do. Just don't get in their way. And for the first roughly 50 to 60 years... They didn't really care what Christians did because they were seen as a Jewish problem. Christians were seen as a problem within Judaism. Don't worry about it, okay? It's when they started needing somebody to blame for stuff that they're like, oh, hey, we got this really cool little sect over here. They're kind of poor and downtrodden. They come from the dredges of society. Let's get rid of them, okay? Right? That's the way it works, because they're the ones in power, and they can persecute whoever they want to. Okay? Christians is a Jewish sect, therefore a Jewish problem. Anytime a riot broke out, Rome sent in the legions. And the legions are really good at killing people and stopping riots. Right? That's what they're trained for. They're trained warriors. That's all they are. Okay? All right? In AD 51, I said 54 earlier, I meant 51. In AD 51... Claudius, who's emperor at the time, he comes after Tiberius, Augustus, Tiberius, Claudius, okay? Tiberius is the main, Augustus Caesar is Caesar during Jesus' birth, Tiberius is throughout Jesus' lifetime, and then Claudius comes to power, 
right? Claudius is the second to last actual Julius Caesar line Caesars. Okay, Nero's the last of the Julius Caesar line Caesars. Okay? Riots break out in Rome between the Jews and the Christians. Claudius sends in the legions, cleans it up, says, knock it off, everybody. And then he kicks the Jews out in AD 51. He literally expels the Jews from Rome. Every single one of them. Okay? Christians are allowed to stay. That's interesting. Okay? In AD 54, Claudius dies. His nephew Nero comes to power. He reigns from AD 54 to AD 68. Why do I say AD in front of the, the date as opposed to 54 AD? Notice I say 586 BC and AD 54. AD means Anno Domini in the year of our Lord. So you don't say 54 in the year of our Lord. You say in the year of our Lord 54. So AD 54. Okay. Nero comes to power. Right. To be honest, Nero at the very beginning of his reign, pretty good emperor. He's all about Rome, as every good emperor should be. He then goes nuts later on, but that's neither here nor there in our discussion. Okay? Uh, here we go. Okay? So in AD 54, uh, or excuse me, uh, in AD 64, June 18th, AD 64, Rome catches on fire. And guess who's accused of fiddling while Rome burns? Nero. Now, that's not a true statement, I want you to know. When Nero saw that Rome was burning, he actually ran into the city and formed a fire brigade and was trying to put out the fire, as every good emperor should. Also, his house was on fire, so what are you going to do? You're going to try to put out your house, right? Ten of the 14 sections of Rome burned almost to the ground. The four that did not belonged to the Jews and the Christians. <laughs> so guess who gets blamed? The Jews and the Christians, all right? So at first, Nero's blamed, right? It's like, oh, Nero set it on fire because he wants to build an even bigger house, right? And they're like, oh, wait a second. Those four districts didn't catch on fire, hmm. right? Nero, giving in to popular opinion, starts to blame the Christians, right? So what does he do? He rounds up the Christians in Rome, and he does all sorts of fun things with them. He arrests them. He has them crucified, right? Lines the ways into Rome with crucified Christians, you know, that took several days on a cross to die. That's always fun and exciting. Or he does this. He throws parties in his backyard, and he uses them as torches. That's what's here on the right side. He crucifies them. Crucifixion is literally just being nailed or tied to a cross. You can be tied to it. You can be nailed to it. You can be nailed upside down. You can be whatever. Just as long as you're somehow on a cross and you're about to suffocate. He would then line them with pitch and sticks and use them as human torches to light up his party so that they could see at night. Fun. Right? Right? And then he also has them ripped apart by dogs, because that's fun too. Okay? 
There's no evidence, though, that the Neronian persecution, as it's called, Neronian after Nero, is seen outside of Rome. It all stays within Rome. That's kind of a, something that's weird about this persecution. It just stays inside Rome's walls. Nothing outside of it. Okay? Questions about Nero? They're good at killing people, yes. There probably was. Right? I mean, he's nothing compared to Caligula, but uh, he ends up being assassinated. I mean, they, he takes it too far. Everybody goes megalomaniac, it seems, when they become a Caesar. So, I don't know. We can get into that later at some other time if we want to go deeper into uh, the first century A.D. with Christians. That would be a good study to have because Rome is actually, despite all of Rome's glory and glory for Rome, they actually played a really central part in early Christianity, which we can't delve into. Okay? Uh, all right. So, so, Christians are persecuted for arson falsely, okay, and for being Christians because their part of the city didn't burn down. So, right. The next one is Domitian, and I'm just going to talk. Yeah, I know, I know the time. <coughs> the next one is Domitian. Now, these are all just the major persecutions. There are local persecutions going on, right? They may just arrest you and flog you or they may arrest you and kill you, or they may arrest you and just put you in a prison and let you rot there for the rest of your life, right? But these are just the big ones, okay? Domitian reigns from 80, uh, 81 to, six, uh, to 96. Uh, at first, he begins to uh, pay little, a Christ, uh, little attention to Christians. Uh, he's more interested in restoring Rome's traditions. He wants to bring back Roman uh, religions and the worship of pagan gods, uh, and then for some reason, one day, a f switch flips and he changes his mind and he's all about persecuting Christians. Okay? Why? Because he's Caesar and he can do what he wants. Okay? All right. Um, right? So, the fact that Christians did not worship the pagan gods may have been the main reason why he was flipped his switch. But for the most part, he just up one day and said, time to persecute the Christians. So they all did it. Okay. Uh, he makes a proclamation against Jews as well, uh, Jews and Romans. Jewish, to the Roman mind, the Jewish distinction is still not clear between Jews and Christians, so they, they lumped Christians in with Jews. Uh, all money that is going to Jerusalem, this is what the proclamation says, any type of money that the Jews are sending to Jerusalem instead has to go to Caesar. Right? So some of them said, okay, here's the money, some of them hid it, all right, but, uh, and then some of them snuck it to Jerusalem. Okay? Uh, it's during Domitian's time that the book of Revelation is written. Right? And it's talking about Domitian. That's, that's where all of that language is coming from. Okay? That's, what, that's what they're experiencing. It's the Domitian persecution. Okay? All right? I think we have a picture. Yeah, there he is. There's Domitian. 
right? Looks very Roman, because he was very Roman, okay? All right, next one. Uh, Marcus Aurelius, all right, here's the big one, Marcus Aurelius from Gladiator, 8161 to 8180. He's a philosopher, all right? He's really good at writing books. He's really good at making arguments against Christians. Uh, mainly his arguments uh, are that, uh, is that they're stubborn. They're a stubborn people because they're willing to give their lives. Okay? Now, I'm going to back up from Marcus Aurelius for just half a second. The emperor Trajan makes an edict earlier in about AD 98 that says Christians are not to be actively sought out. All right? If a neighbor rats on them, great, bring them to court. We'll take care of them there. They can either renounce their faith, they can be flogged, or we'll just have them executed. But for the most part, Trajan says, don't go actively seeking out Christians. It's a waste of time. Right? Okay? Marcus Aurelius, on the other hand, as brilliant as a philosopher as he is, goes, bring them in. Let's end these people. They're stubborn. So he writes a lot of books. Like if you read his meditations, the meditations of Marcus Aurelius, he actually talks about how stubborn Christians are. He's like these people, he calls them Christus or Christos. They're, they're stubborn. Therefore, we need to wipe them out. Get rid of them out of Rome. Get rid of them out of the Roman Empire. No big deal. Okay? So uh, this is the first big, big persecution is under Marcus Aurelius. Okay? There he is. Well, he's got that nice Greek beard on him. Most Romans like to be shaved or have a line of beard, which is gross. Okay? But Marcus Aurelius wanted to be a philosopher, and so he looks like a Greek guy as opposed to a Roman Caesar. Okay? Right. Uh, okay, after his death, his son Commodus takes power. He does not die in the arena. Okay, Russell Crowe does not kill Commodus. Commodus dies of an illness. After his death, Rome breaks out into civil wars. There's like six emperors in between Commodus and the next dude, Septimus Severus. Right? And they all reign for like a year or two. And then Septimus Severus comes to power. This man is a real jerk. He creates an edict called uh, Sol Invictus, or the Unconquering Sun, S-U-N, Sol Invictus, meaning that the sun is the main god, and everybody else, god is, you can worship your own little god, but you also have to worship the sun. If I'm a Christian, am I going to worship the sun? No, I'm going to worship the person that created the sun, right? Okay, so that doesn't fly well with Septus, Septimus Severus, Right? So he outlaws all conversions to Judaism or Christianity on the penalty of death. You become a Christian, you're done. By the way, it's during Septicemius Severus's reign that we run into a certain saint named Saint Valentinus. Valentine. Right? He's executed during this period. Okay? Right? So... But the weird thing about it is, is once he, once he signs it, once he signs the edict into 
fashion or into, into law, about a year and a half to two years later, persecution just stops. People just stop doing it because there's so much bloodshed. They're like, enough. It's kind of like they got it all out of their system and then just went their way. Right? But the edict still stood that if you, were a, if you converted to Christianity or Judaism, you're dead. Okay? All across the empire, blood's being spilled everywhere. Okay? The next one is Decius. I don't know if they have a picture of Decius. No, they don't. It doesn't matter. Decius, 249 to 251. He's a really short reign. Okay? Uh, he wants to bring back Rome's glory days as well. He's an old school Roman. He wants to follow Rome's old religion. Right? So you have to get a certificate to show that you're a true Roman. And to get that certificate, you have to sacrifice to either Caesar or to the Roman gods. Right? Some Christians gave in and said, I'll sacrifice as long as I get the certificate. Some of them said, over my dead body. And Decius was like, you got it, dude. Right? Some got a little tricky and forged their certificates so that they could get away by saying, oh, I've got a certificate, but it's not real. I'm not going to tell you that. Okay? So, what? Uh, Christians really are unprepared for this edict because the last time they ran into any type of persecution was under Septus Simeus Severus, and so there's been about 40 years where there's nothing going on, and they got fat and lazy. Okay? So they're like, oh, right? So they're like, we don't know what to do. Right? So like I said, some ran and sacrificed to get their certificate, some forged them, some refused and were executed, and some were just tortured. Right? Good old torture. Right? And with the tortured, you run into what we call confessors, and we'll get into that next week. Okay? The big one, and is the very last one, the Diocletian persecutions. Diocletian was uh, the emperor from 284 to 305. There he is. He's not even Italian. He's not even born on the Italian peninsula. Right? He's born in Dalmatia. Where's Dalmatia? By the way, they named a dog after him. 101 of them. Huh? Dalmatia is in present-day Croatia. It's the coast of Croatia, right, which is the former part of former Yugoslavia. Okay? He's a general. He takes over. He's a brilliant administrator. Right? Doesn't really care about being Caesar, but he just has to be because they put him in power, and he's like, all right, fine. Right? Now, he comes to power. It's the worst one of all. When he comes to power, he splits the Empire in the fourths. We'll talk about that next week. But what he wants to do is he wants to bring glory back to the Roman Empire. So he outlaws Christians in the army. Can't be a Christian and in the Roman legions. Out you go. Okay? They're like, okay. So in, uh, in AD 303, he writes an edict that says Christians are now to be removed from any type of authority. So that comes along with burnings of buildings and burnings of books. Right? So there's these series of pogroms. Pogroms is P-O-G-R-O-M-S. Pogroms takes a place across all of the empire. 
Doesn't matter if it's east or west, north or south. Jew, uh, Christian buildings, Christian books, scripture burned. Right? A modern day analogy to that would be Kristallnacht on the night of November 9th and 10th, 1938, when the Nazis did that same thing to Jews. Okay? That's basically what that is. Right? So rough them up a little bit, scare them, right? let them remember who's in charge and that they're not welcomed here. Okay? Along with those pogroms came localized killings, executions, tortures. Uh, man, they crucified hundreds of thousands of people all across the empire at this time. Hundreds of thousands just because of their faith. Okay? Right? And then Diocletian goes, you know what? I'm done. So in 8305, he retires. He retires to his Dalmatian Coast villa to grow all things cabbage. That's what he wanted to do. He wanted to be a cabbage grower. Crazy, huh? Yeah. But he did. He just up and said, I'm done. See you later. That brings in Constantine's father, and we'll get into that next week. Okay? All right. I want to talk quickly about two people at this time who suffered martyrdom, two big names in the church. The first is Ignatius of Antioch, and he was born about AD 30, lived to be about 77, AD 107. He was the second bishop of Antioch. The first bishop of Antioch was one of those Hellenized Jewish believers who fled during Stephen's persecution or after the Stephen persecution persecution. Right? He has a direct link to the 12 apostles. That's important. Okay? A direct link to the 12 apostles. Right? He opposes a local heresy and the guy that he's opposing rats him out. Right? He's like, he doesn't like what I'm saying so I'm going to go tell the authorities. So the authorities arrest him and say, we're going to take you to Rome, and we're going to execute you. And he's like, yes. Because martyrdom at this time is seen as a big deal, a huge deal. People actually run into martyrdom. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what people think back then, but whatever, right? I'm a historian, not a psychologist, right? So Ignatius goes, fine with me. So along the way, he writes to the seven churches in uh, Asia Minor, the same seven churches that John wrote to in the book of Revelation. Okay? And those are important. Those letters are important because they talk about how martyrdom is faced and what the church was going through at that time. That's Ignatius's importance. He talks about uh, martyrdom, and he talks about the face of what's going on in the church at the time. So with martyrdom, he talks about persecution as well. Okay? You can actually, we still have his writings, two of his letters. Okay? Polycarp of Smyrna. Smyrna is one of the seven churches written about in the book of Revelation. Polycarp, that's an awesome name, by the way. I don't know what it means, but Polycarp. It has nothing to do with multiple fish. Right? <laughs> so, right? He's the bishop of, of Smyrna. He's the disciple of the apostle John. Right? So he, too, has a direct link to the 12 apostles. Right? Okay. 
He's hilarious. So uh, when he's sought out by the Roman authorities, at first he hid, right? Because his congregation was like, we can't afford to lose you. Would you please go hide? And so he does for about six months, and then he feels guilty. And then he turns himself into the authorities, and they're like, are you sure you want to do this? And John's like, or uh, Polycarp's like, yeah. And he's like, they're like, okay, because we're going to put you to death. And he's like, fantastic. That's what I'm here for. Right? So he's, he gets charged with a charge of atheism. Why? Because Christians don't have a visible God to worship. So he's standing in the middle of these 20 judges. And one of them yells, down with the atheist. And Polycarp, being the amazing man that he is and quick on his feet, goes, points at all 20 of them, and he goes, yes, down with the atheists. Right? Because he just called them, you don't believe in the real God, so you're actually the atheists. Turned it on them. Right? Real quick on his feet. But then they're like, come on, man. Just denounce, denounce Jesus. Denounce your faith. Sacrifice. And we'll let you go. And they're like, you're old. Come on, bud. You're 86 years old. And he goes, in one of the most famous quotes from this time, he goes, for 86 years I have served him and he has done me no evil. How could I curse my king who saved me? And he just kind of goes, it's up to you. So they burned him at the stake. Right? But what an amazing testimony. How, for 86 years, I have served my king. How could, I, how could I turn my back on him? He's done nothing but save me. Right? Amazing. Okay? Challenges. And then we'll, here's Ignatius. Right? Here's Polycarp. Okay? We're going to do two challenges, then we'll pick up next week and move on from there. You want to go, huh? You want to go? Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, questions? It's like drinking from a fire hose, folks. I'm sorry, but it is. Yeah. Okay. Uh, 8070, there's a, the Jewish war from 66, 8066 to 8070. Uh, the Jews rebelled against Rome because they were always rebelling against somebody. And uh, <clears throat> the... Uh, the Romans sent in the legions. There was a four-year civil war down there. And uh, in AD 70, they literally burned the temple to the ground, which effectively ends temple worship Judaism. There's no temple to, the, to this day. The Wailing Wall or the Western Wall is all that's remaining of uh, Herod the Great's temple. So that's, that's it. That's why it's, it's such an important Jewish uh, place to, to pray and all that because it, it's, it ties back to temple worship. So, yeah. Any other questions? What? It's not, is it Nero? No, 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 no. It started under Nero and then ended, uh, I tra not Trajan, I don't know, I can't remember. I'm not a, not a Roman historian, I can't remember. That's why I wrote. That's why I wrote down what I wrote. So, uh, sorry, Anna.
your brother let you down this time. So, uh, that's a true statement. I'll probably remember later on. I'll, I'll text you. I'll text you. So, thanks. Thanks. So, anything else? Titus. Titus was the emperor. T-I-T-U-S. Uh, they were some of the zealots that were in the Civil War from 80, 66 to 70. They were just kind of like the last bastion. Yeah, then they committed mass suicide. It was actually one heck of a, one heck of a battle, and they put up a pretty good defense. They just ran out of food. There was nothing left to do. Mm-hmm. That too. Yeah, they went in and it was, they were besieged for like a year, something like that. It was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So. I can see that. It was a heck of a, heck of a defense. Anything else? You want to close this? Amen.